All right, so let's start this um, wonderful panel titled The Struggle for Women's Rights in Iraq. I know for, for some of you, uh, it's been a long day and, and you've been through uh, a couple of panels today. Um, so I'm really, really excited uh, to be more moderating uh, this panel. I'm, I'm talking to you from Princeton, New Jersey, so I'm starting my day and I know that most of you in London or in Baghdad, you're just at the end of your day. Uh, so I'm, my name is Zahra Ali, I'm a sociologist, um, I work at uh, Rutgers University and I'm the author of the book Women and Gender, uh, uh, Women and Gender in Iraq uh, Between Nation Building and Fragmentation, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. So a couple of things So before we begin, uh, first of all I would like to tell everybody that this um, uh, event is live and recorded. Uh, and uh, before I introduce our uh, amazing speakers, uh, I'd like to uh, let you know that uh, they're all going to speak for around seven minutes uh, because we want to leave also time and, and, and space for discussion. And um, uh, during the presentation, you uh, feel free to actually uh, um, drop your questions uh, in the Q&A. Uh, um, and I will go through the questions and, 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 and distribute them to, to our, our speakers. Uh, the other very important thing, uh, since we're having uh, um, uh, panelists as well and attendees from, um, uh, uh, from Iraq, um, uh, you can use, uh, there is a, a Arabic-English interpretation that is provided. And you can basically use the, the, the button on the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and you can choose whether you want uh, a translation in English or um, in Arabic. Um, all right, so let's start uh, with, uh, um, let me introduce uh, Marwa Abdelradaib. Um, she is joining us from Baghdad. She is a lawyer and she is uh, an activist and founder of the Baghdad-based women's legal advocacy NGO for her. Uh, she was also a researcher um, in the Middle East Center at LSE, uh, a part of the Conflict Research Program project, where she worked on the project Patriarchal Norms and Legal Discrimination Against Women and Girls in Iraq. So, uh, Aziz Timarwa, you have uh, I'm starting the timer. يعني بالواقع راح أتحدث أحاول بشكل سريع بس لأنه الحقوق القانونية للمرأة وقبل الانتخابات هذا موضوع كل الشيق ومعقد باعتبار أنه أول حقوق تستهدف بالعراق قبل الانتخابات هي حقوق المرأة راح أتحدث راح أوزع الحديث على ثلاث محامر أحاول بشكل مختصر أولها قانون العنف الأسري وقانون الأحوال الشخصية حاخذ منه بعض الفقرات والتعارض بين قوانين الإقليم وقوانين المركز باعتبار أنه إقليم كردستان عدد كثير من القوانين المتعلقة بقضايا المرأة أولها قانون العنف الأسري انتهت كتابة قانون العنف الأسري بال2011 من قبل وزارة المرأة قبل إلغائها وتكفلت بعد إلغاء وزارة المرأة دائرة تمكين المرأة بموضوع قانون العنف الأسري هذا من ناحية مجلس الوزراء فيما بعد أنتجت رئاسة الجمهورية نسخة ثانية فأصبح لدينا نسختين لقانون العنف الأسري واحدة من مجلس الوزراء اللي متمثل بدائرة تمكين المرأة والثانية من رئاسة الجمهورية اللي أنتجها بسنة 2019 
بالواقع صارت عندنا نسختين وهذه النسختين كانت تحدي ان كنساء يشتغلون على هذا القانون برغم انه البعض يشوف وجود نسختين هو شيء ايجابي لكن هو كان وحده من اسباب تعطيل تشريع القانون باعتبار التنافس اللي اللي بين السلطات الثلاثه ثلاث دورات انتخابيه اللي احنا هسه قاربنا على انتهاء الدوره الانتخابيه الثالثه بعد 2011 قرأ مره واحده قانون العنف الاسري اعترضت عليه معظم الاحزاب الاسلاميه واستغل حتى الاحزاب اللي كانت تدافع عن القانون هي استغلتها للدعايه المضاده لانه بالواقع هو ما كان اكو جديه حتى من الجهات الداعمه للقانون ما كان عندها جديه بتشريعه فيعني احنا نعتقد انه اعتراض الاحزاب الاسلاميه واضافه للجهات الداعمه للقانون كان ما كان عندها جديه بالتالي استغلتها للدعايه المضاده ضد الاحزاب الاسلاميه ابرز ميزات قانون العنف الاسري يعني قانون العنف الاسري هو ما اجى بشيء كلش يعني مثل ما احنا نحلم فشيء كلش ممتاز بالنسبه لموضوع العنف الاسري طبعا اود اشير انه قانون العنف الاسري بدايه كان اسمه قانون العنف ضد المراه لكن باعتبار انه كثير يعتقدون انه هذه اللفظه هي ثقيله على المجتمع انه نقول قانون يتعلق بالعنف ضد المراه باعتبار انكار وجود العنف ضد المراه من قبل كثير من فئات المجتمع وبضمنهم مجلس النواب فتغير اسمه وسموه قانون العنف الاسري شنو ابرز ما جاء به بالواقع هي اشياء كلش يعني احنا نحتاجها وهي مو يعني مو هوايه بالنسبه لقانون ابرز الميزات بهذا القانون هو انشاء دور امنه للمتعرضين للعنف بغض النظر نساء او رجال او اطفال انشاء محاكم مختصه بالعنف الاسري ثالثها وهو عدم التقييد بالاختصاص المكاني حيث يعطي هذا القانون في حال اذا ما تشرع اي اي حق اي شخص يقدر يقدم شكوى في مكان وجوده لانه القانون العراقي الحالي يشترط انه تقيم الشكوى بمكان وقوع الجريمه، بس بتشريع القانون لا تقدر تقيمها بمكان باي مكان انت موجود به، فهذا القانون يعطينا ميزه انه ما نروح على مكان اقامه الشكوى، آه هذا القانون باجراءات وقرار حمايه للمعنفين، تفصيلاتها كلش هوايه، وهي هاي وحده هاي الاشياء من اهم اسباب الاعتراض على القانون، وان كان هو الدور الامنه هي وحده من ابرز الاشياء وابرز الاعتراضات اللي سببت عدم عدم قراءته على الاقل مو بس عدم تشريعه. قانون النقطه الثانيه اللي راح اتحدث عنها هو قانون الاحوال الشخصيه. قانون الاحوال الشخصيه مع كل واللي انا يعني ليش ضفت قانون الاحوال الشخصيه مع العنف الاسري؟ باعتبار انه قانون الاحوال الشخصيه اللي يتعلق بالطلاق والزواج والميراث يستهدف مع كل قرب انتخابات، احنا كل قرب انتخابات النساء بالعراق يتحضرون لطرح تعديلات على قانون الاحوال الشخصيه واللي هي بالغالب هذه التعديلات هي ضد حقوق النساء اللي اكتسبتها بوجود قانون الاحوال الشخصيه. من هذه الاستغلال هو قانون الاحوال الشخصيه قانون الاحوال الجعفري اللي طرح بالانتخابات السابقه واللي هو طرح كتعديل لقانون الاحوال الشخصيه. هذه السنه في هذه الانتخابات اللي هي قريبه طرح تعديل 59 واللي هو يعني ما اقدر اقول عليه انه اللي طرح هذا التعديل هو حتى ما قاري قانون الاحوال الشخصيه او ما يعرف بالتفاصيل القانونيه الموجوده بالعراق. ابرز ما به بالانتهاكات لحقوق النساء بالماده 57 هو سحب الحضانه من الام بمجرد زواجها بالتالي اجبار النساء على عدم عدم طلب الطلاق وفي سبيل انه تبقي على اطفالها وتبقي الحضانه عليها وتقليل سن الحضانه الى سبع سنوات بالواقع الحالي هي عندنا عشر سنوات طبعا هذه الماده كلش خطره والتعديل اللي طرح كلش خطر بالنسبه للنساء وهو مع قرب الانتخابات 
وهو حال حال العنف الأسري استغلوا الطرفين الأحزاب الإسلامية وحتى الأحزاب المدافعة عن تعديل المادة استغلتها بطريقة يعني بشعة ما كان لها أي علاقة بحقوق النساء ما يتعلق بموضوع الطلاق قانون الأحوال الشخصية أعطى الحق للنساء بطلب مو بطلب الطلاق طلب التفريق التفريق القضائي التفريق القضائي إلى أسباب كأن يكون ضرر كأن يكون ضرب وغيرها المشاكل لكن بالفترات الأخيرة إحنا كمحامين أو حتى كنساء نشتغل بمجال المرأة صرنا نشوف أكو توجيه لكن هذا التوجيه غير معلن من قبل محكمة التمييز حتى يخففون من نسب الطلاق وطبعاً هذا التخفيف إجا على عاتق المرأة حتى يخففون من نسب الطلاق شنو سووا ألغوا فكرة حصول المرأة على الطلاق من خلال طلب التفريق فقامت تضطر النساء وين تروح تروح للمخالعه المخالعه بالواقع تضطر تتنازل عن كل حقوقها حتى تحصل الطلاق فهذا اللي جاي يصير عندنا نص قانوني لكن التطبيق ومحكمه التمييز ما جاي تقدمه بعدم وجود قانون العنف الاسري شنو اللي جاي يطبق حاليا اللي جاي يطبق حاليا هو قانون العقوبات رقم 11 سنه 69 ابرز ما جاء به راح استعرضها سريعا اعتقد هذا القانون قانون العقوبات يشجع على العنف ويبيح العنف ضد النساء وحتى غير النساء من هذه المواد اللي تشجع وتبيح العنف هي الماده 41 اللي تعطي حق للزوج بتاديب زوجته والاولاد والماده 409 اللي تنطي الحق للزوج بقتل زوجته أو أحد محامة في الحال وهذا الشيء كلش خطر لأنه حتى التعديلات اللي تطرح على هذه المادة هي تعديلات خطيرة يعني هذه المادة هي وحدة من المواد اللي تشجع على قتل غسلا للعار والمادة 377 اللي اللي متعاقب الزوج في حالة الزنا إلا إذا زنا في منزل الزوجية وهذا وحدة من أسباب التمييز القانوني اللي موجودة في قانون العقوبات اخر شيء هي الماده اللي اللي تبيح للزوج انه يحرض زوجته على الزنا والقانون ما يعاقبه الا اذا زنت في الا اذا زنت بناء على هذا التحريض يعني لو زوجه اشتكت على زوجها انه هو جاي يحرضني على الزنا بالواقع القانون العراقي ما راح يعاقبه الا اذا زنت لانه النص واضح فزنت بناء بناء على هذا التحريض يعني اذا ما زنت اعتقد القانون ما يعاقب الزوج هذه آخر فقرة عندي هي التعارض أتمنى ما أخذت من الوقت هواية الزارة التعارض بين قوانين الإقليم وقوانين المركز قانون الإقليم العراقي عدل كثير من القوانين ضمنها اللي هسه أنا ذكرتها لكن بسبب عدم وجود التنسيق بين بين مجلس النواب المركز ومجلس النواب الإقليم وأيضا المحاكم فنشوف بمجرد ما يعبر الشخص لكركوك أو بغداد أو حتى أي محافظة ثانية فهو يعني تحرر من كل القيود القانونية أو كل التعديلات القانونية اللي سواها الإقليم مثل موضوع تعدد الزوجات الإقليم عدل موضوع تعدد الزوجات حتى موضوع التأديب تعدل بالإقليم لكن بمجرد ما يعبر هذا الشخص يروح الكركوك يعني إذا يريد يعدد الزوجات يعبر الكركوك ويعقد زواجه طبيعي فهذا التعارض وعدم وجود تنسيق بين المحاكم وبين الجهات اللي متعلقه بالتحقيق والقضاء سببت نوع من الارباك لانه حتى بوجود قانون الاقليم عندهم قانون للعنف الاسري حتى بوجود قانون للعنف الاسري بوجود هذه التعديلات الاقليم ما جاي يطلع من موضوع العنف الاسري ولا زال يعني حاله حال بقيه المحافظات العراقيه باعتبار انه نحتاج حتى ببقيه المحافظات يصير عندنا قوانين ويصير عندنا هذه التعديلات يلا يقدر حتى الاقليم يخف عند نسب العنف باعتبار انه الاقليم حتى يعاني 
من مستوى مرتفع من ختان الإنات وهذا عالج قانون العنف الأسري لكن مثل ما قلت أنه مجرد ما يعبر محافظة ثانية يتحرر من هذا الشيء القانوني فيقدر يمارس الجريمة بكل سلاسة باعتبار أنه بالمحافظة هذا الشيء ما يعتبر جريمة شكرا لكم شكرا سيزهراء شكرا جزيلا عزيزتي مروة يعني الموضوع مؤثر ومهم ومؤلم فعشيدك على المداخل الرائعة Um, okay, so, so now we have uh, our next uh, speaker is um, Zainab uh, Kaya, who is a lecturer in international relations uh, at the University of Sheffield. Her main research areas uh, involve borderlands, territoriality, conflict, peace, political legitimacy, and gender in the Middle East. Uh, she has recently published a monograph entitled Mapping Kurdistan, Territory, Self-Determination, and Nationalism with Cambridge University Press. Um, and Zainab is also the co-editor of um, uh, I.B. Torres Bloomsbury Kurdish Studies series. And she's also a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center and an academic associate at Pembroke College, uh, University of uh, Cambridge. So Zainab, you have seven minutes. Thank you, Zara. I'll try to keep to the time. Um, in the time I have, I will try to summarize some insights from a research project I conducted with my research partner, Dr. Ilham Maki in Iraq. And the research took place in 2020, 2020, 2021. And it was funded by GIZ. And it looked at women's involvement in peace and justice processes and examined how these processes impact women. The report is coming out um, later this year in English and Arabic. So the, we conducted this research in six provinces, Baghdad, Basra, Erbil, Kirkuk, Najaf, and Nineveh to reflect the diverse ethnic religious ideological composition, composition of Iraq, uh, but most importantly to reflect the different ways in which um, conflict, displacement, instability, political tensions, violence, were experienced in different locations. And also each province has its own specific characteristics, history, internal political contexts that differ from others, so which needed to also be taken into account. So in this way, we wanted to avoid presenting a narrow and singular view of peace and women's roles, uh, of, of peace and women's roles in peace processes in Iraq. And we talked to 91 peace activists, civil society representatives, journalists, legal experts, and academics. Um, they were mostly women, but also uh, there were men among them. The two biggest takeaways from this research uh, were that the peace work and women's involvement in this work in Iraq are surrounded and shaped by a continuum of violence, a gendered structural context, and a political establishment that creates and actually normalizes the obstacles to this work. Um, and second takeaway was that there is huge friction, friction and gap between the political elite and the people as was discussed throughout the day today, um, be between the political elite and the people over the governance of the country, over building peace and justice and issues around these things, issues. Um, and um, with political elite, I refer to actors, uh, political actors, but also the power dynamics and the economy security, um, and violence system they sit on basically. Um, the lack of trust in the state, uh, in the political elite, the rule of law, and the interest of the establishment uh, to generate peace. Um, uh, and so there are quick, serious doubts about, about this. And that this came through very clearly during the research. 
So, you know, it's a big research. It was a, we covered a huge range of topics and several important insights and lessons came uh, from this. I can't do justice to all of that. So I'll just, I'd like to just share a few general points that stood out for me. Uh, the first one was in relation to the definition of peace, what peace means. Um, and the respondents defined peace and peace activities in a very comprehensive way, actually, that goes well beyond the narrow and formal conceptions of peace. So there were multiple women's agendas, multiple visions of peace and, and different views on how these should be pursued. And basically all these views exist on the ground. And respondents did not define peace only as the absence of violence. Um, the way they talked about it fitted with a structural conception of peace, uh, referring to social, political, legal structures and institutions. Um, and they also did not talk about violence simply as physical violence, but as structural violence that harms people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs, fulfilling their lives and goals and expressing their opinions, so on and so forth. Um, also, another conception of peace related to um, structural and dimensions of it was about transformational dimension of peace. So that came through a lot. Uh, and with transformational peace, they um, uh, referred to uh, a peace that creates tolerance and coexistence in society. Uh, they gave lots of examples, for instance, they, you know, a peace that enables women and men to have freedom of opinion, to protest, that allows women to get out of the house without fear of harassment, kidnapping, assassination, uh, to, you know, for allowing women to take an active role in public and in social media without fear of misogynistic defamation, uh, you know, and, and also the, a peace that ensures women's access to receive the right kind of health services, find a job, uh, earn a living for themselves and for their families. So all in all, peace was defined and understood in different ways. And the way they were defined depended on the line of work the respondents pursued, the circumstances of the province they were in, the specific community groups so, and issues that they were focusing on. So the second point I want to make, uh, you know, what I want to share from the research is related to the definitions, multiple definitions of peace and how international actors perceive peace in Iraq. What do they understand as peace um, in Iraq? And um, the international community's perception, unsurprisingly, um, does not understand the plurality of views on peace in Iraq. Um, uh, mostly they don't adopt the holistic view of peace and do not leave room for um, unique and relevant conceptions and methods to emerge and initiate change. Um, and I think you know, international actors should be aware of this and adopt a more nuanced approach to peace and women's roles in peace processes. Another point uh, in relation to this, this is that the women peace activists and feminists in Iraq call for a proper implementation of CEDO, international human rights principles, um, but this does not mean that they endorse the political agendas of foreign states that, you know, uh, support these principles. So it's important to, I think, acknowledge that women's rights activists are stuck in a difficult place, are stuck in a difficult place. Um, they need funding to pursue their work, but this funding is attached to political and security agendas. So this creates significant risks for them. Um, and related to this, the more the international community sees women's rights agenda as a Western political agenda, uh, the more it actually harms women's rights work in Iraq. Um, so it's important to note, um, as Zahra knows very well, and all of you here know well, it, women's rights work in Iraq is not new. It has a long history and it, it, not, it did not emerge as a result of um, Western involvement. 
The third point uh, that I want to mention is the discrepancy um, between formal justice mechanisms and what people want. Um, so there is huge discrepancy between existing transitional justice mechanisms used by the Iraqi government, such as the Martyrs Foundation, and what Iraqi respondents called real justice. So they had a much more, um, much wider scope of, uh, they talked about much wider scope of issues and activities that go beyond existing formal justice procedures. Um, they also have a different understanding of the relationship between peace and justice um, compared to how state institutions and formal legal procedures construe it. So respondents em emphasize, for instance, the problem of the politicization of justice processes or the simplistic implementation of justice, for instance, simply focusing on compensation and reparations. And finally, about justice and peace, um, and they think peace um, um, is difficult to achieve with the existing justice processes, and they think that existing justice mechanisms are outdated and unable to address injustices and crimes related to genocide, mass, mass atrocities, and sexual violence. So they criticize the lack of a gender perspective on peace, um, the overlook of women's specific needs and their expectations, and most notably issues around gender legal discrimination against women, uh, women as Marva talked about, uh, in the lack of legal protection for women, the lack of punishment for perpetrators of violence um, against women. So fourth and final point, I'm, I hope I'm not speaking too fast, um, about the differences between formal and informal peace processes that are taking place in Iraq. Um, so the main point I want to make is that, two points actually in relation to this, is that there's so much existing informal peace work going on in Iraq that's unnoticed. Um, and uh, women and men of all ages, especially the young, are in, you know, involved. They were individually in groups or as civil society, society organizations. Um, they um, use charity, personal income funding from international organizations to carry out work. These initiatives are small scale, but impactful. Uh, but these initiatives are hard to sustain due to lack of um, political and financial support. Um, and the underlying problem is that a state-led national agenda to build peace, peace is absent. And most respondents said political leaders act as if they do not want peace. And despite these problems, uh, informal peace initiatives continue to exist. They are more inclusive of women, whereas the formal peace building mechanisms such as Committee for Peace, uh, Coexistence and community, community Peace, I'm almost finished. Uh, they were described as less inclusive, women take part, but if they do, they don't have important roles. They are inflexible, cosmetic, broad and bureaucratic, and their projects are short-term. But at the, at, the bottom, at the bottom of it, what's interesting is that the funding that goes to formal peace mechanisms, local peace committees, is coming from international community. The gov government doesn't put money in that. It only just bureaucratically manages it. So, and doesn't have genuine and sustained support support for for these uh, mechanisms either. And I will finish there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Zainab. This is so rich and so dense, and you managed to say so much, uh, um, you know, in in a short uh, amount of time. So so. Thank you very much. And I'm also glad to hear about the fact that you worked on this project with the great researcher Ilham Mekki. I'm, I'm super glad because I work with her as well. Um, all right, so our next um, speaker is uh, Gule Bohr. So uh, Gule is a lawyer, researcher, and consultant with a focus on transnational justice, human rights, gender and sexuality in Iraq and Turkey. Uh, she pre previously managed 
manage the genocide documentation project of Yazidi in Dhok, in Kurdistan, as a Harvard Law School Satif fellow and conducted research on reparation for survivors of um, ISIS in Iraq at the LSE Middle East Center uh, as part of the con conflict research program uh, as well. Um, so, um, Gule, you have seven minutes. Uh, thank you so much, Zahra. I'm humbled to be here today with, uh, with such distinguished panelists and thank you to the Middle East Center for inviting me. Uh, I'll be talking about the Yazidi Survivors Law today, including its background, framework, and um, some thoughts on implementation that are based on both my research with the Conflict Research Program Iraq um, and uh, with the International Organization for Migration uh, Iraq. Uh, so the Yazidi Female Survivors Law was introduced in April 2019 by Barham Saleh to redress the Yazidi genocide uh, and provide reparations, especially to the thousands of survivors of conflict-related sexual violence uh, who had received um, very little response. Uh, the first draft of the bill uh, was criticized on several grounds, including uh, the lack of explicit acknowledgement of uh, conflict-related sexual violence, uh, its limited scope of eligibility, and uh, internal inconsistencies within the law. Uh, many of these inadequacies arose from the lack of survivor participation and specialty on uh, gender sensitive reparations uh, during its uh, drafting. And to remedy this gap, a number of actors, uh, especially survivors groups, community based organizations, uh, other civil society actors, uh, took action to better incorporate uh, survivors' demands and uh, uphold the bill to international standards. And finally, uh, a revised draft passed two years later in, uh, in March 2021. The final text of the Yazidi Survivors Law is a testament to uh, the hard work of, of those who um, of those involved in advocacy for this law, uh, since it remedies many of the flaws that was criticized in, in the first draft. Uh, we see um, most importantly that the, the, the term survivor is defined to include those who survived conflict-related sexual violence by explicitly referring to several forms of CRSV, which include sexual slavery, forced marriage, forced pregnancy, and forced abortion. Uh, and although the title remains the Yazidi Female Survivors Law, it includes um, female uh, Turkmen, Christian, and Shabak survivors that were kidnapped by um, IS, and additionally, Yazidi children who were minors at the time of abduction, uh, as well as female and male uh, Yazidi, Turkmen, Christian, and Shabak survivors of mass killings are deemed eligible to receive uh, reparations. Uh, still, unfortunately, the law's eligibility criteria arbitrarily uh, leave out Turkmen Christian and Shabak boys who survived uh, captivity. It also excludes uh, non-female survivors of sexual violence and survivors from communities other than the four uh, that are mentioned in the law. And their exclusion violates both international law and the Iraqi constitution. And these uh, sectarian eligibility requirements may exacerbate um, or, or spark intercommunity tensions. Uh, the only issue that was tackled in the first draft of the law but excluded uh, afterwards was the registration of children born of rape uh, who are currently forced to register uh, under the father's name and as Muslims um, as per laws in force, uh, which has been um, understandably quite an issue within the Yazidi community. 
Uh, and the first draft had included some vague provisions to uh, address this, but it was unclear how these provisions were to uh, benefit uh, the children or their mothers. Uh, and eventually we, we saw that in the final text, these provisions were excluded uh, altogether. It does not provide any remedies for children born of rape, even though the victim status of children uh, is recognized separately from their mothers under international law. And Iraq is under the obligation to provide reparations also um, to the children. Um, as for what benefits this law promises, um, well, the survivors will be granted uh, a monthly salary, uh, a residential plot of land with a real estate loan, uh, or a free housing unit, uh, medical and psychosocial care, priority at public employment, and the right to return to study, notwithstanding their age. Uh, but we do not know how much or for how long survivors will receive these benefits. These details are yet unclear. Uh, they will be clarified through bylaws, uh, as well as decisions of uh, the committee that is in charge of rendering individual uh, reparation decisions based on applications to be uh, received from, from the survivors. The law also provides for search of the missing, which is critical. It has been the, um, the most prioritized demand raised by the Yazidi community since thousands of Yazidis uh, remain missing and, and many are still thought to be uh, in captivity. Uh, so following the adoption of this law, the Council of Ministers uh, appointed the head of the directorate uh, that is in charge of um, implementing reparation decisions. Uh, and the bylaws were drafted and, and finalized in June 2021, uh, sent to the Council of Ministers for approval. There are no developments as of yet, um, and, and survivors are, of course, waiting for implementation. Um, however, implementation will be uh, tricky uh, and there has to be special attention uh, to the daily challenges that women face that can also impact their access uh, to this program. For example, the directorate was established in Mosul. Uh, there has to be branches in areas that are in close proximity to survivors, given that um, some may have uh, limited um, mobility, restricted mobility uh, due to poverty, safety um, uh, or customs. Um, but opening up dedicated spaces for survivors to apply in small communities uh, can also expose individual survivors as such, and uh, it may prevent them from applying due to fear or stigma. So there has to be innovative methods like mainstreaming um, these application processes in existing government offices, but with dedicated um, and trained staff that will prioritize the well-being and, and dignity of survivors uh, at all times and ensure confidentiality uh, of the process. Um, in addition to that, the implementation of this law has to be complemented with reconstruction, with development and with security sector reform, uh, as well as legal reform that, that Marwa uh, just very um, comprehensively explained to ensure that survivors can truly uh, enjoy the benefits upon uh, distribution. As an example, the survivors will not be able to enjoy a property to be granted under the law if it's located in areas with no security, no infrastructure, uh, no services such as uh, Sinjar. So this points to the significance of tackling barriers to return at the same time, because otherwise um, the, the property restoration uh, will have no point. Survivors will not be able to uh, enjoy these benefits. 
Um, and um, as I conclude, I, I'd just like to emphasize um, that even with full implementation, the Yazidi survivor's law is, is not a cure-all. Uh, it will not suffice by itself to redress the centuries of discrimination and, and violence that minorities, women, and minority um, women from minority communities uh, have been subjected to. So there has to be broader mechanisms uh, that in order to truly guarantee uh, non-repetition of these violations. But this law still is a major step uh, to redress some of the immediate harms that survivors continue to suffer from for over seven years now. And um, Nadia Murad stated just yesterday in a panel that survivors cannot wait uh, another seven years for reparations to be delivered. So hopefully uh, we'll see concrete action very soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the really great presentation. Um, so um, I, I would like to remind our um, attendees that you can uh, send your, your questions in, in, the, in the chat box. Um, I've, I've seen, so we, we have a, a, few, a few things going on uh, uh, in the chat box, and I'm going to gather kind of the questions in, in, in a few, um, in maybe one or two questions that I will uh, address to, I mean, first of all, Awal Shimarwa, uh, um, let's let's start with you. Um, have يعني عندي سؤال حول um, شلون أنت تحللين أو تشوفين علاقة um, علاقة ثورة تشرين وعلاقة مشاركة النساء أو الجيل الجديد للنسويات في ثورة تشرين بالنشاط uh, النسوي عموما. وايضا يعني بالنشاطات اللي بالذات يعني حول قانون مكافحه العنف الاسري هل تنظرين انه هناك علاقه ام لا يعني بالواقع يعني انا قبل فتره بسيطه كنت بحديث مع معظم النساء اللي مشاركات في تشرين اعتقد تم استغلال الشابات او هو مو استغلال كان انه يعني بتقصد بس انه النساء اللي انخرطوا بتشرين انخرطوا بالاعمال اللوجستيه يعني حتى اللي طرعوا من الادوار الجندريه اللي هي فكره الطبخ وانه تطبخ وتنظف حتى اللي اخذوا غير ادوار كان تكون ادوار اسعافات او حتى غير ادوار يعني من الادوار التقليديه هسه بدينا نناقش كشابات وكنساء انه ليش احنا تشرين ما طرحنا هذه القضايا اللي لها علاقه بالقوانين يعني بالواقع اذا اذا يعني من نرجع راجع تشرين نشوف نادر جدا او شبه معدوم انه احنا طرحنا قضايا قانونيه فاعتقد انه للاسف النساء بتشرين ما طرحوا هذه القضايا القانونيه يمكن هسه بدأوا النساء اللي مشاركات التشرين يطرحون هذه القضايا أكيد يعني هم بسبب وعيهم اللي صار بتشرين لكن تشرين كانت فرصة كلش كبيرة للنساء لو تم استثمارها بشكل صحيح كان ممكن نحقق كثير من الانتصارات القانونية يعني حتى إحنا حاولنا كمحاميات إنه نسوينا يعني خيمة قانونية على الأقل نشرح يعني شنو دستور يعني شنو قوانين حتى مو ما ندخل ممكن بالبدايه بقضيه المراه لكن واجهتنا يعني صراعات وصدامات انه لا يعني خلونا اكو ادوار ثانيه فهاي الادوار الثانيه هي اللي اخذتنا بالواقع من فتره طرح القضايا القانونيه اللي لها علاقه بالنساء واللي هي الاف من القضايا سواء القانونيه او حتى المجتمعيه لكن اعتقد ممكن بالمستقبل يعني يكون تكون تشرين واحده من اسباب تعديل هذه القوانين بس يعني ما تم استثمارها بشكل صح. 
شكراً جزيلاً عشيدك Uh, so we have a few questions to um, uh, Guli and, and Zainab. Um, so, so first of all, let me ask perhaps a general question to both of you. Um, um, both of you in your presentation, you have um, really emphasized on the relationship between what is considered commonly gender-based violence and more structural dimension, right? So basically also the relationship between the structural and, and what is deemed as you know, gender and the structural as well and, and the political. And I think this is also kind of one of the questions that in, in, the, in the chat uh, tackles this as well. So could you both perhaps expand on this? Um, um, I would say theoretically also maybe and, and, maybe, uh, and as well, of course, uh, politically in, in more practical terms. Shall I shall I go first? Um, so it's 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 a question that requires a really long answer. So my answer will probably be very limited. Um, but um, um, the structural violence refers to the context um, of um, structures that are shaped by legal rules, by institutional structures, uh, by economic um, uh, rules and um, you know like the labor law um, you know penal code the ability of women to get into parliament so all these structural institutional legal background combined and obviously fed with existing customary uh, customary uh, norms and rules um, certain perceptions or interpretations of religion. Uh, and these are all enmeshed with each other and they create uh, the context in which violence takes place, in any form of violence takes place. Um, and uh, in this context, the, the violence is not just physical violence, just not domestic violence. The wider structure of violence uh, facilitates and enables extreme forms of violence that can take place physically uh, or in conflict. Uh, but the domestic violence in the house, um, sexual violence in conflict is not separated from this wider normative structural institutional context that enables it and that facilitates it. So without changing the legal norms or without changing the wider structures, um, it's very difficult to challenge domestic violence as well. Um, and that will be, I think, my uh, very insufficient answer, Zara. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with, uh, with Zainab's uh, answer. And, and perhaps in the context of the Yazidi survivors law, uh, we can also talk about how this, this law um, it, it does provide, of course, some immediate um, support, including, of course, um, the, the monthly salary, the psychosocial support that survivors uh, direly need. These are the uh, immediate consequences. Um, the, the, these will address the immediate consequences of sexual violence, but they will not by themselves, of course, tackle why there was sexual violence um, during the IS conflict in the first place. And, and Zainab has a brilliant report uh, on this from uh, LSE, who I think was uh, just posted uh, on the chat. Uh, so while this, this law does... Um, uh, carry important weight for, for survivors, they're of course very realistic because first and foremost, they remain in, in IDP camps, they remain displaced. And there is the huge question that um, is sort of the elephant in the room of 
where are survivors going to enjoy these benefits? Where are these medical centers going to be opened? How, how are they going to spend this money? Where are they going to go to school if there is no school or if there's no security? Uh, so there are these um, larger issues that directly uh, pertain to the implementation of the Yazidi survivors law. Uh, and they also, um, in addition to the implementation, they also directly concern if this law can in any way contribute to guaranteeing the non-repetition uh, of these violations. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I know it's a very tough question and you, you mentioned it uh, in, in your presentation. Um, so so um, we have a more precise questions. So for Goulet, if, if you can stay with us, uh, about the Yazidi survivors law. Uh, we have a question from uh, uh, Maryam Putik. Uh, to what extent does the location of the headquarters in Nainoa represent a barrier to implementation uh, to the implementation of the law, given the chronic marginalization of the, the governorate in terms of budget and resource allocation from the central govern uh, government? That's an excellent question. Um, and Miriam has done um, great research on the law number 20, which is the uh, existing reparation scheme in Iraq, but does not provide uh, any uh, reparations for it does not um, render eligible survivors of conflict related sexual violence. So uh, which was one of the main reasons why this Yazidi survivors law had to be uh, introduced. This is, of course, a serious issue, both because uh, we know how the subcommittees uh, have worked in, in Nineveh without uh, a piece of paper, sometimes without any resources. Uh, and this has created an incredible amount of backlog, uh, huge delays in, in having the reparation decisions uh, implemented, lack of coordination between different bodies. Now, what's going to be even more challenging is there is a new law, once again, um, with a directorate based uh, in Nineveh that is um, going to implement the decisions by a committee and that committee is composed of representatives from the government of Iraq and KRG um, that live in, in different governorates and then they have to also coordinate with a lot of the ministries, uh, federal ministries in Iraq. The directorate is also established under the Federal Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs. Uh, the survivors are in KRI, uh, a number of them are in Sinjar, so we have um, I think a huge puzzle uh, in front of us as to how uh, these different um, government bodies are going to coordinate with each other with the limited resources and staff that they have. Um, and in addition to that, also limited experience when it comes to delivering reparations that are gender sensitive. Um, and yeah, I think um, that's a great question that um, I think we will be thinking about a lot in, in the coming months. Um, so we have a question also for, for Zainab. Um, when it comes to uh, the international community, especially aid community, do you think a third state pressure on the government of Iraq might allow to pressure passing needed laws and adopting a legal frame to promote women's rights? <laughs> That's a, an interesting question. <laughs> Sorry, I'm muted. That is an interesting question. And, uh, you know, with aid community, how do we define aid community? I mean, if it is international IN, in organizations, UN and INGOs, um, they are also funded by states. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, I, I think it's difficult to define what aid community is actually and the role states play in, in that context. Uh, but this is a really good question because I think um, it's something that, you know, 
that's always it's like the elephant in the room and we always think that and you know that some pressure external pressure might lead to some positive outcomes in terms of um initiating legal norms or changing some of the legal rules that discriminate against women. CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, for instance, um, the Iraqi government signed up to it in 1985. There's a CEDAW committee. The work is still ongoing every year. You know, there are reports being written. and um, But the change is not happening. I think the I am a bit cynical about how much the external impact or a pressure might work because so far, especially since the, um, for the last 15 years, I suppose, um, the external pressure, international pressure has not necessarily lead to the expected outcomes in terms of legal changes or the changes has been very slow or they are not being implemented. Um, I think if the Iraqi government has, doesn't, doesn't have the intention, um, the pressure would not necessarily be that effective. Secondly, the international community, particularly states that have close relationships with Iraq, economically, financially, in terms of security arena, they seem to be dealing and talking with the Iraqi government on issues that are not necessarily, um, they, they are not talking about gender with them. It's almost like they are funneling the money, funneling the money to civil society organizations on gender issues, but not bring the, bringing this issue explicitly up in their conversations with the government directly. It's like two ships passing by in the dark. And then in the Iraqi context as well, it's as if like the women's issues are not necessarily related to more important security issues that are going on, economic issues. I mean, the political elite is how much do they care, I mean, especially those who are in power on this, about this issue. So um, I, I guess I don't have a clear answer to that question, but these are just my thoughts on, on the issue. Thank you so much, uh, Zainab. We have a question from the great researcher Keiko Sakai from Japan. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a question for all of you. Um, so so uh, um, uh, Merwa uh, um, as well. So Merwa, uh, Guli and Zainab. So the question is, I understand that the Iraqi children bore, uh, born to a, an uh, IS, I guess ISIS father and an Iraqi mother who is Muslim are deprived of, of their basic rights. There is a campaign to amend such legal situation. And uh, the question is, who are the main body of such campaign? And what are the obstacles for the reform? بالواقع انه الموضوع هو مو قانوني الموضوع هو موضوع اجراءات لانه الدستور العراقي بال2005 اعطى الحق للام العراقيه انه تنطي جنسيه لاولادها وعلى هالاساس انشاء التحفظ من اتفاقيه سيدا وعلى هالاساس بصدور قانون الجنسيه العراقي اعطى الحق لكل ام عراقيه ان تنطي جنسيتها لاولادها بالواقع اللي جيصير عندنا المشكلة هو مشكلة إجراءات وتطبيق هذا القانون على الأطفال المولودين من داعش لأنه أعتقد أنا قرأت السؤال والسؤال كان دقيق هو الأم المسلمة لأنه الأم الغير مسلمة يعني أكو بعض الجهات أو الفئات الدينية ترفض تسجيل هؤلاء الأطفال وهم اللي عليهم كثير من المشاكل واللي للآن صعب تسجيلهم جدا لكن الأم المسلمة يفترض هو الموضوع موضوع إجراءات وبمجرد ضغوط ممكن تمارسها المنظمات أو ممكن تمارسها جهات الدولية تقدر الأم تنطي جنسيتها لأولادها لأنه أعتقد 
يعني حسب ما سمعت بالفترة القليلة الماضية أنه صار أكو قرار لأم مسلمة عندها طفل من داعش لو بالأنبار لو بصلاح الدين أعطيت جنسية لابنها لكن الموضوع البقية الأمهات هو مشكلة إجراءات وتطبيق هاي الإجراءات وفهم القضاء وفهم جهات الدولة لوجود دستور عراقي وهذا الدستور يفترض أن الأم تنطي جنسيتها لأولادها فهو الموضوع موضوع إجراءات والجهة اللي تشتغل على هذه الحملة هي أعتقد بعض النائبات من البرلمان يعني يعني ما عندي معلومة دقيقة هل هذه الحملة لها علاقة بالدعاية الانتخابية باعتبار إحنا قريبين من الانتخابات أو هي حملة راح تكون مستمرة إلى أن تحصل الأمهات المسلمات جنسيات لأطفالهم فهذا اللي أعرفه عن الحملة لكن اللي أقدر أقول أنه الموضوع قانوني هو موضوع إجراءات وموضوع تعاون مع الجهات ذات العلاقة كأن تكون وزارة الداخلية أو مجلس القضاء الأعلى والمحاكم وغيرها فهذا اللي أقدر أقوله يعني معلومات عن الحملة مو كلش انخرطت فيها صراحة Would you like to say something? Yeah, maybe that? I can just uh, add a few thoughts to what, what Marwa just said. Uh, I think with, uh, with regards to um, non-women uh, who are from other uh, religions uh, who are not Muslim, but who have um, children born of rape um, that were perpetrated by uh, IS fighters, we have the situation where because the father um, is Muslim, then the children are being registered as Muslim despite uh, the mother not being Muslim. So this creates the issue of a Yazidi mother and a Muslim uh, child that also carries um, the father's name, uh, not just the, the, his, his religion, but also um, the name of, of the perpetrator. Uh, so this uh, has caused, of course, um, um, reluctance to register the children that um, that is caused by these uh, these discriminatory legal provisions. In addition to that, of course, there is a social stigma um, against mothers who, who want to keep their children uh, that were born of rape. And, and this has caused quite a lot of um, controversy and, and, and difficult conversations within the Yazidi community. But this law that um, forces um, the father's name and, and religion onto the children uh, has um, has worsened the situation uh, greatly. So um, we were hoping that this would be addressed with this Yazidi survivors law, uh, but we're seeing that um, for, for certain reasons, probably uh, not to um, interfere with, with religious leaders' decisions. Uh, Iraq has decided, that the, the Council of Representatives has decided to leave this, these provisions out. But of course, whatever um, decisions religious leaders gives, this does not um, in any way mean that Iraq does not have an obligation under international law um, to provide these children with their rights, including their, uh, their right to reparation. Thank you, Gule. Uh, Zainab, would you like to say something about that? It's been, uh, I think it's been well covered by, uh, by both uh, Gule and Marwa. Uh, but I think it's a really important issue and, you know, the, the religious norms and customs play a huge role in, in this context and the different ways in which um, religious authorities interpret these laws and the way they implement it has a significant role as well. Uh, I think there is more, we need to do more, I think, work on how the legal norms um, are intersecting with the dominant uh, interpretations of of religion and of customary roles in different parts of Iraq. Of, of course, this also changes from 
Like in Basra, it will be different, whereas in and you know what the situation might be different. But it's a really important issue and difficult to address. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's a, a question from Taif actually. I just saw it in Marwa. Uh, so in, in relation to calls to um, amend uh, so who has made this suggestion which political parties was this um, uh, specific, a specific call made during uh, prior elections يعني بالواقع هو طرح مباشرة من قبل الانتخابات قبل قبل ثلاث شهور من الانتخابات وباقي جلستين على نهاية مجلس النواب أو باقي ثلاث جلسات تقريبا لأن الجلسة الأخيرة ما تحققت اللي طرح هذا التعديل هو هو حزب الفضيلة بالواقع إحنا ما ننكر الحاجة لوجود تعديل المادة 57 بسبب وجود مشاكل بها إلها علاقة بمشاهدة الأطفال داخل المحاكم لكن التعديل اللي طرح كان مستهدف المرأة بشكل واضح ومباشر لأنه حتى القضاة اللي كانوا مساندين تعديل المادة 57 بمجرد قراءتهم للتعديل المطروح من قبل حزب الفضيلة اصطفوا مع النساء ورضوا التعديل المطروح فاللي طرحها حزب الفضيلة وساندت بعض الأحزاب أو الشخصيات اللي تدعي انتماء للدين وحتى استخدموها بالدعاية الانتخابية يعني الآن معظم الدعاية الانتخابية اللي لها علاقة بالحزب الفضيلة أو الشخصيات الدينية الموجودة بمجلس النواب شخصيات حتى نساء يعني مو كلهم رجال أغلب النساء يعني اللي طلبوا القراءة الثانية للسبعة وخمسين كلهم نساء عندنا ثلاث كتب صدرت من نساء طلبت القراءة الثانية للسبعة وخمسين والتصويت بالجلسة الأخيرة لكن ما انعقدت هذه الجلسة فهو حزب الفضيلة بمساندة بعض النساء بداخل مجلس النواب Okay, shukran jazeelan to everybody. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I think we are, th there's, a, there's a question. I, I can send the question. It's to Gule, but uh, I think we're out of time to answer the question. It's just been sent a minute before the end of, of our panel. Uh, so I will, I will copy it to Gule directly. Uh, it's sent from Christoph uh, Newman. Uh, so thank you all. Thank you. Thank you to our great panelists uh, for the great expertise. Um, uh, it's such a rich uh, panel. Thank you so much. And um, well, I just would like to remind you all. So this is the end of today's uh, panel. Um, uh, but tomorrow you should uh, absolutely tune in uh, uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, London time for panels on the Iraqi protest movement and as well on uh, environmental uh, challenges uh, uh, um, that Iraq Iraqis are facing. Uh, so thank you all so much. I'm, I'm going to leave it here. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, uh, I'll hope to see everyone tomorrow.